Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you're here to join us in a study of God's Word. Good morning, everyone. Apologies in advance for my voice. It has all but abandoned me, but we have some left, so we're going to use it. So, having concluded our sermon series in the book of Philippians two weeks ago, we'll be beginning a new series that will be in for a lot of weeks. I'm not sure of the exact number. We'll be moving into Leviticus, and after that, the book of Hebrews. And this morning, rather than diving right into Leviticus, we'll instead be taking a bird's eye view at the book of Hebrews and then a closer look at one particular passage in chapter 10. And hopefully doing so will allow us to see the interconnection between these two books and the benefit of studying them in sequence. As to the book of Hebrews, there's much that we do not know about the background of this book. We're not told who the author is. There's uncertainty about the exact date that it was written although almost all scholars agree that it was written before 70 A.D. in the fall of the Jerusalem temple. And we're also not directly told who the intended recipients are. Yet despite some of these unknowns, there's still a lot that can be discerned about this book simply from its content. We see that the literary form is that of a letter. And while it may not have the normal introduction that we're used to seeing, in many biblical epistles, nonetheless, it's still a letter. We can also see from this letter's content that the author was writing to a group of Christians who had a very thorough understanding of the Old Testament and its systems. They knew the words of the prophets, they could sing all the psalms, they could recite the law. They understood the sacrificial system, the role of the Levitical priesthood, and the function of the temple. These people were well-versed with the Mosaic Covenant and its practices because they had been living under it. And we can see this because the author does not slow down on any of these points to explain how the old system operated because the recipients of this letter already knew the ins and outs of its function. Rather, we see the author of Hebrews explaining how the old system was always meant to point towards the new. The tabernacle, temple, animal sacrifices, priesthood, and old covenant served as copies and shadows of the heavenly things. But now because Christ had come and accomplished his work, the old system was obsolete. This people no longer needed to look at the shadow Because Christ had revealed himself, and he is the very form. They no longer needed to stare and study the vague outline that was cast on the wall, for they could turn around and see the one from whom the shadow was cast. Because Jesus, the one to whom all these things were pointing, had arrived, it made no sense to cling to the old system. Yet, this is exactly what the recipients of this letter were considering. They had left behind Judaism and began following Christ. 
But now, because of prolonged and increased persecution, they're thinking of turning back again. They, like the first generation of Israelites who left Egypt, had forgotten how far God had brought them, but instead were pining for a time when they thought life was easier. The group in Exodus, after having become hungry, complained to Moses and Aaron, saying, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They longed to return to Egypt once again to be enslaved because they had grown hungry. And the group of Christians to which the author of Hebrews is writing this letter are considering doing the same type of thing. They're thinking about reverting to Judaism. They want to go back to the way of life that they had grown to be so familiar with. They're on the verge of returning to the sacrifices, the priesthood, the temple ceremonies, and to the friends and family members that they would now be ostracized with. They're about to throw in the towel on this whole new Christian movement and return to the old. And to this end, the author of Hebrews is begging these people not to turn back. As commentator Richard Phillips had said, the purpose of Hebrews is made clear by its content. The writer warns Christians not to fall back from faith in Christ in the midst of trials and exhorts them instead to press on to full maturity. His method to do so is to point out the supremacy of Christ over everything to which the readers might be tempted to turn. Christ is superior to angels, to Moses and to the prophets, to Aaron and the Levitical priests, to the blood sacrifices of the Old Covenant, and to the tabernacle and temple themselves. And since Jesus is the true messenger, the true prophet, the true priest, and the true sacrifice, to renounce him is to lose salvation altogether. Therefore, the readers must hold fast to Jesus Christ. And Phillips concludes this thought by saying, the author's plea is summed up in Hebrews 10.23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And this is what we see in the book of Hebrews. The author exposits several Old Testament texts and uses them to show his readers that Jesus is better. And this morning, in order to kick off our two-part series in Leviticus and then Hebrews, we'll be looking to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. And these verses, particularly verses 11 through 18, provide an overview and a conclusion to the central doctrinal portion of Hebrews. And they also will help bring to mind why a proper understanding of the book of Leviticus is so vital to properly understanding the book of Hebrews. If you're not there with me already, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers having once been cleansed 
would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. And by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time and time again the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So reads the word of the living God. And once again, as this morning is intended to introduce us to the series in Leviticus and Hebrews that we'll be spending a significant amount of time in, we'll be approaching this text as an overview. We'll not be taking a deep dive into it, but merely scratching the surface so that we can have a better understanding of what is to come in the weeks and months ahead. And we'll be looking at three big picture items in this text that have been built upon elsewhere in this letter. Jesus is the better sacrifice, he is the better priesthood, and he is the mediator of a better covenant. Verses 1 through 10 speak of Jesus being the better sacrifice. In verse 1, the author points out to his readers one of the law's limitations. Because it is only a shadow of the good things to come, not the actual image It will never, by the same sacrifices which were offered continually year by year, be able to perfect those who draw near. And this would be a big problem to hear if you were still living under or thinking of returning to the old covenant after the new one had been put into effect. For the very setup of the tabernacle and the temple that followed after and the whole Judaic system of worship points to the perfection and holiness of God. One of, its, one of the intentions of its design was to make the people realize that they could not just approach God as they were, covered in sin. The people needed to be washed and cleansed. The priests needed to be washed and cleansed, and the high priest needed to be washed and cleansed before any of them could approach God. <clears throat> so the fact that the offerings that they had been making, the daily ones and the annual ones on the Day of Atonement, could not perfect those that draw near, was bad news indeed. 
And just in case the people didn't believe the author of Hebrews, he proves this argument from several different angles. We see in verse 2 that he reveals that the sacrifices themselves point to this reality. If the sacrifices were able to perfect those who draw near, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? If they were enough, wouldn't the worshipers be cleansed from their sin once and for all and no longer have consciousness or guilt of their sin? Yet the author knows and his recipients also know from their own experience that this is not the case. We see as much in verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. And these sacrifices don't aid in the forgetting of sins, but rather they act as a reminder. In verse 4, the author elaborates further on the law's limitation in this department. He says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Not only is the law incapable by itself of perfecting those who draw near, but it's impossible for the animal sacrifices made under the law to take away sins. And theologian Matthew Poole gets to the heart of this verse well when he said, The blood of all the other sacrifices could not by expiation pardon them, nor by sanctification cleanse them, nor by removing the sense of them comfort the soul. They could pacify neither God nor the sinner's conscience, having no virtue of power to satisfy God's justice or merit his grace. It only had, by God's constitution, a power to typify, to typify that blood which could do both. And as we move into verse 5, the author of Hebrews says, once again, don't take my word for this. Let's look to God's word. And at this specific juncture, he turns to Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. And through the Holy Spirit's guidance, he reveals that David's words in this psalm prophetically point to Christ. And we see this most clearly from the ESV's translation of these verses, especially verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. <clears throat> the author uses this psalm to point out to his readers that God was never interested in just a ritualistic, check-the-box type of sacrifice. God is the one that set up the sacrificial system in the first place. But it was always designed to be accompanied by more than just outward obedience. God desires more than this. His desire is for his people to be eager and willing to do his will. The writers of the Reformed Expositors Commentary put this well. What God desires from us is obedience, not sacrifices to cover our disobedience. And in addition to this, the author also uses this psalm to show the contrast between the type of sacrifice made in the old system versus Christ's sacrifice. 
In verse 4 of our text, we saw that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And look what Christ's sacrifice is able to accomplish in verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The blood of these animals will never fully take away sins, but the offering of the body of Jesus Christ is able to sanctify once for all those who belong to him. As F.F. Bruce has said on this point, our author's contrast is between the involuntary sacrifice of dumb animals and sacrifice into which obedience enters. The sacrifice of a rational and spiritual being, which is not passive in death, but in dying makes the will of God its own. And this brings us to verse 11. Verse 11 begins by saying, every priest. And this topic of the Levitical priesthood versus Jesus' priesthood and the insufficiencies of the former high priest versus the all-sufficiency of Christ as high priest have been fully explored by the author in the preceding chapters of this letter. As is the nature of an overview, we obviously have not spent the weeks or more likely months of study needed to understand all that the author has to say about the difference between these two priesthoods. Instead, we've taken a bypass around these chapters and arrived at the author's summarization here in these verses. And just as we can take note from verses 1 through 10 of our text that Jesus is the better sacrifice, we take note from verses 11 through 14 that Jesus is the better priesthood. And verse 11 offers a quick synopsis of the role the Levitical priests played. It says, Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time and time again the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And verses 12 through 13 give a quick synopsis of Jesus' role as priest. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. When speaking of Jesus' role as priest, or more specifically high priest, the author of Hebrews returns to Psalm 110, which he has already looked at in length in various places throughout this letter. And he uses verse 1 of this psalm to paint the vivid contrast that existed between the two different priesthoods. Verse 11 of our text sets forth every Levitical priest. Verses 12 and 13, which quote Psalm 110.1, sets forth Jesus. And look at the stark differences between them. Every other priest stands. Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. Not only do they stand... They stand daily ministering, offering time and time again the same sacrifices. Meanwhile, Jesus offered one sacrifice for all time. Every other priest offered all these sacrifices that could never take away sins. Yet Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. And we see the result of this sacrifice in verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected 
for all time those who are sanctified. And we have heard words like this in verse 14, time and time again, here and elsewhere throughout Scripture. And sadly, so often we just breeze right over these words because to us, this is just how things work. For us, we conclude, yeah, that's like Christianity 101. Jesus made one offering. Because of that offering, all those that belong to him have been perfected for all time. We miss why this group of people might have a hang-up here that needs to be explained and reinforced. And unlike us, these words for those who were living under or had lived under the old covenant would be hard to accept as a reality. And not because the Bible was silent on what was awaiting them, but because the one-time, all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus in the new covenant stood against the backdrop of endless sacrifices that would have been required to make in the old. So, in order to reinforce the truth of verse 14, the author once again turns to the Old Testament scriptures. He returns to a text and a theme that he has been expositing on in chapter 8 of Hebrews. The text is Jeremiah 31, and the theme is the new covenant. And unlike chapter 8 of Hebrews, the author does not quote Jeremiah's prophecy here in full, but rather highlights two of the promises made in this covenant and also some of the marvelous results. Take a look at verses 15 and 17 of chapter 10 of Hebrews. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, in their sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. It was hard for the readers of this letter to believe that one sacrifice could perfect for all time those who are sanctified. So the author lovingly takes this group by the hand and walks them back to the Old Testament scriptures and shows them that the prophecy in Jeremiah clearly points to this reality. The author reminds them that the Holy Spirit bears witness of this truth. For after the Spirit inspired Jeremiah to prophesy that in the new covenant, God will put his law upon the heart of his people and write it upon their mind. The author also reminds his readers what is said after this. And their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. And once again, because we're diving headlong right into the middle of this book, we've obviously missed a ton of context. Uh, But chapter 9 of Hebrews fills in some of the gaps here. The author speaks of Jesus inaugurating the new covenant with his own blood. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 18 say, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For a covenant is only valid when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. And we see here that Jesus ushered in the new covenant, and now that it's in place, the amazing promises and results for those within it have become available. Promises like we saw in verse 14 that speak to how Christ's one offering is able to perfect for all time those who are sanctified. And the author of Hebrews then delivers his final blow to the old system and the sacrifices upon which it rested in verse 18. He says, Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. And Charles Spurgeon summarizes this verse well by saying, The offering for sin is in order that sin may be put away, and if it be put away, so that God himself will remember it no more, what more is wanted? What more could be desired? And this verse brings the main doctrinal section of Hebrews to a close. And from verse 19 on, the author proceeds to help the readers apply this doctrine. I know we just flew through a whole lot of text. And as I said earlier, we just grazed the surface. And my intention in looking to these verses in Hebrews is that they will help launch us into this two-part series that it's ahead of us. <clears throat> and as always, first and foremost, the intention of preaching God's word is that each of you might hear it clearly revealed so that God's spirit might lead, correct, encourage, or convict you from his own word. <clears throat> Yet beyond this, I also hope that looking to this passage of scripture this morning might accomplish two practical purposes as well. First, I hope that it will help us to understand what to expect when we return to the book of Hebrews and walk through it verse by verse. And second, I hope that our quick look at Jesus being the better sacrifice, the better priesthood, and the mediator of a better covenant has caused us to realize that one cannot properly understand nor properly appreciate the book of Hebrews without first understanding the Old Covenant, the role of the tabernacle, the sacrifices, and the priesthood. The author was writing to a group of people that had a thorough and intimate knowledge of all of these things. And before we can even come close to understanding what this book is saying, we must first acquire some of this knowledge for ourselves. And the best place to do this is the book of Leviticus. So, Lord willing, starting next week, we'll begin our study in Leviticus, and once we finish there, we'll move into the book of Hebrews. And as we study both of these books, there's unmistakably much more to gain than mere knowledge. <clears throat> For God does not desire us to be scholars of his words. He desires us to be better worshipers of him. And a few years ago, when the youth group walked through the book of Hebrews, this is a reality that was left upon my heart 
and I think I can safely say the hearts of the other leaders as well. The reality that the better we understand the old covenant and all that was involved with it, the more we will appreciate the work that God accomplished through Christ in the new, resulting in further praise to God. As we grow in our understanding of the old covenant, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, and the Levitical priesthood, this knowledge should lead us to marvel over all that Christ accomplished to bring about the new covenant and lead us to worship God all the more. And not because the old covenant was bad and the new covenant is good. The first covenant was an amazing act of grace from God. We'll see in Leviticus all that God did and enacted to bring a sinful people back into his holy presence. No, we worship God all the more because the new covenant is better. Jesus is better. Better than the prophets, better than the angels, better than Moses and Joshua, better than the Levitical priesthood, and better than the old covenant and its sacrifices. And this knowledge should then lead us to an even greater appreciation of Christ. For how much more thankfulness would we have for Christ's sacrifice if we knew what it felt like to walk out to our flocks, pick out an innocent, spotless animal, drag it to the temple courtyard, and then slaughter it? Watching its blood spill to the ground and its life being ended to cover over our sins. And not just once, but over and over again. Knowing that this was the only way our sins could be covered, but also understanding that all of these sacrifices pointed to and awaited the sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God, who would offer himself once and for all for the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of your sins and my sins. How much greater appreciation would we have for Christ as our high priest if we knew what it was like to have priests serving us that were beset with weaknesses just like ourselves. Priests that sinned, that had to offer sacrifices for themselves as well. They would have got sick, they needed sleep, and they died. Have we ever thanked God for always having access to him because of his son? Or have we overlooked how marvelous it is that Jesus, our high priest, always lives to make intercession for us. And how much more would we worship the Lord for putting his laws upon our hearts and writing them upon our minds if we knew what it was like to try obeying and following him without this reality? How much more would we fall on our knees praising him that our sins and lawless deeds he remembers no more if we understood what it felt like to have the constant awareness and guilt of our sins upon our backs. Far too often, we forget or we overlook these amazing things and fail to offer God the praise and worship that he is due. He is worthy of all our praise and all of our worship. And as we press deeper into his word and closer to him, it should cause us to praise him all the more. And this is the intended result of all of scripture And it will be our intention as we look to Leviticus and Hebrews in the upcoming weeks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. Just thank you again for this time to gather to open up your word. And just uh, hear from you, Lord. Pray that in the weeks to come as we look to your word in Leviticus and then Hebrews 
that you would just <clears throat> teach us and uh, lead us to all that you would have us learn, that in doing so, we would not only grow more knowledgeable in your word, Lord, but also have a greater appreciation for all that you've done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose, come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue.